God's word comes to us today from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and left the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when you speak, the dead are raised to life. So speak to us now by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Today we're launching a new sermon series that will carry us through until June, exploring the Bible's answers to a very simple but important question. What is a Christian? Now, people often use the term Christian as a category to describe someone's cultural or religious or family heritage. For some, it's just the default box you tick on the census form or when you go into hospital. I'm British. Britain is a Christian country. Therefore, I must be a Christian. Uh, Nowadays, I suspect that's probably more true of the older generations and less true for the younger ones. Sometimes, tragically, I've come across this where uh, people who use the word Christian uh, do so almost as a synonym for white. This happens especially I've seen it on the on the on the on the far right side of British politics and that is just completely foreign to the true meaning and purpose of the words. Now other people might say I'm a Christian because my my parents had me baptized or christened when I was a baby and they might say that irrespective of what they believe now or the way of life that they now practice. So such people being a Christian is more about tradition. It's part of their cultural or family identity rather than an intrinsic part of their lived day to day experience. Similarly, others might call themselves Christian because they were born to Christian parents in a similar way that a child born to a Jewish mother is typically considered Jewish or a child born to Muslim parents is considered Muslim. But as Billy Graham once said, you cannot inherit Christianity. Being born in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in a garage makes you a car. Still, other people might say that a person is a Christian because he or she goes to church regularly. Well, Christians will certainly want to go to church, but simply going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than me pulling on an Argentina shirt with Messi on the back makes me Lionel Messi. Just because Christians go to church doesn't mean that It's going to church that makes them Christian. Correlation isn't the same as causation. 
And then there are still others uh, who say that they're Christian because they live by Christian values like the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The problem is, though, that people of other faiths and none can live very good ethical lives. And so a Christian has to be more than someone who lives a good moral life. So if a Christian is more than just a marker of someone's cultural, religious or family background, more than someone who was christened as a child or brought up in a Christian home, more than someone who goes to church on Sundays and tries to live a good moral life, then what does it mean to be a Christian? That's the point of this sermon series, to take a look at different ways the Bible speaks about what it means by authentic Christianity and to help us consider first whether we are Christians in the way that the Bible means by that word and also if we are, how we came to be that way. What happened to us in our conversion? And so we start our series today with this great passage from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. What we're going to see is that a Christian is someone brought from death to life, someone who is saved by grace through faith. So let me just pick pick out a few uh, verses for us to, to hang this on. Verses 1, 4, 5, 8 and 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what is a Christian? This passage gives us three answers to that question. First, a Christian is someone brought from death to life. Second, a Christian is someone made alive with Christ. And third, a Christian is someone saved by grace through faith. And so in the rest of the time that we have, I just want to explore each of these three different descriptions of what it means to be a Christian from this passage in Ephesians 2. So first, a Christian is someone brought from death to life. You were dead. That's what Paul says in verse 1. You were dead. As an assessment of the human condition, it doesn't get any starker than that. Not you were a little under the weather, not you were signed off on long-term sick leave, not even you were in critical condition in the intensive care unit. No, Paul says you were dead, lifeless, devoid of vital signs, unconscious, unresponsive, unfeeling, unmoving, unbreathing. You were a corpse. You were dead. As the general confession in the Book of Common Prayer has taught generations of Christians to pray, there is no health in us. None. As the psalmist says in Psalm 83, there is no health in my body. Sorry, Psalm 38. And as Paul writes in Romans 7, I know that good itself does not dwell in me. So apart from the grace of God, we are dead. In our more honest moments, we know that we're flawed, that we mess up, that we're not even all that we want to be, let alone all that God wants us to be. But surely there's some health in us, right? Wrong. The only life we have comes from God. Apart from Christ, there is only death. Life is God's gift. He created it. He sustains it. He is it. God is life. And yet, reading the Bible, it's abundantly clear that God doesn't 
accept the clinical definition of death as the irreversible cessation of circulatory, respiratory and brain function. That might be how most of us think about death. That's not how God thinks about death. Death is more than a cessation, even the irreversible cessation of these things. Life means being connected to the life source. And death means being disconnected from the life source. So let me give you two images, a technological image and an organic image. So first, a phone might have a really long battery life, but if it's not recharged, what will happen to it? It will die. A flower cut off from its roots may live for a short time. They may look absolutely stunning in a vase for a week or even two, but we know that ultimately it's dying and no amount of flower food and fresh water will preserve it. And the Bible says that's true of us also. Cut off from God, we are dead, no matter how nice we might look on the outside. This distinctive understanding of life and death is evident from the very first pages of the Bible. God creates humanity and positively commands them to enjoy his creation. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There's just one caveat, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. In other words, the only limit imposed on humanity is that they're not God. And along comes God's enemy and persuades Eve to give the fruit a go. Initially, she refuses because, as God said, they'll die if they eat it. However, the enemy then directly contradicts God, telling Eve it was an empty threat. You will not certainly die. A few minutes later, Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Now, tell me what you would expect to happen next. You'd expect them to both drop dead right there and then, holding their throats, coughing and spluttering for a while, wouldn't you? But they don't. So, did the devil get it right? It certainly seems that way. And it all depends on what we mean by death. Clearly, on a biological level, Adam and Eve didn't die on the day they ate the fruit, as God had said they would. In fact, a couple of chapters later, in Genesis uh, chapter 5, verse 5, we're told that Adam ended up living to the age of 930. Therefore, instead, some, some have argued that Adam and Eve's death was actually the loss of immortality. And it's an attractive argument, but nothing in the story leads us to understand that they were immortal up until this point. In fact, the very fact that God seeks to prevent them eating of the tree of life and living forever rather suggests to me that they weren't, but were sustained by their presence in Eden. All of which leads us to the only other logical possibility, that death is the name the Bible gives to that state of separation from God, from one another, from the natural world, which we see enter the scene immediately after the transgression. It's the state of the prodigal son before he returns home. His father says, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. In the biblical worldview, death is to be a wanderer east of Eden, exiled from the life-giving presence of God. You were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We were dead, Paul says, and the cause of death written on the death certificate is sin. 
I rather like the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. Sin, humanity's declaration of independence from its creation, from its creator, is in the air we've breathed ever since we were born. It's been part of every culture and every place and every time. We've learned sin as a child learns language from its parents. And the fact is that simply breathing the air, we've become infected. It's not just that we're people who sin occasionally, but we're sinners through and through, each of us implicated in humanity's attempt to go it alone without God. And as such, Paul says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's to say, all of us, through our ingrained sin, have become God's enemies, collaborating with God's great enemy and setting ourselves against God's rule and reign. So Paul's diagnosis of the human condition apart from Christ is simple. We're dead. John Piper writes, we're dead in the sense that we cannot see or savour the glory of Christ. We are spiritually dead. We are unresponsive to God and Christ and this world. How are you feeling? (laughs) Nice, encouraging, uplifting so far, isn't it? But something changed. And that leads us to our second point. A Christian is someone made alive with Christ. Let's look again and think and ponder those three simple words. You were dead. And now that we're all appropriately sobered by this assessment of the human condition, can you just pause with me a while and wonder at the kind of God who makes this sentence possible? You were dead dead. Now those three words have no business going together. If you're dead, you stay dead. Game over. The end. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to say you were dead. If you were dead, presumably you still are dead. After all, that's how we've learned to define death, the irreversible cessation of respiratory, circulatory or brain function. But what's more, we don't usually go around talking to dead people. Now we might say he is dead or she is dead but never you are dead let alone you were dead. The very use of a second person pronoun you together with the words were and dead is frankly preposterous. Only God can make this sentence work. And so to quote the well-known American theologian Sir Mix-a-Lot, I like big butts and I cannot lie. And butts don't come much bigger than the but in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. You were dead, but God. You were dead, Paul says, but with God, death isn't the last word. You were dead, Paul says, but with God, death isn't the ultimate reality. You were dead, Paul says, but with God, death isn't fatal. With God, the irreversible is reversible. Just ask Jairus, whose daughter Jesus brought back to life with the tender words, Talitha, Kumi, little lamb, little girl, get up. Ask Mary and Martha, whose brother Jesus beckoned out of the grave with the command, Lazarus, come out. 
Ask Jesus himself who was crucified, dead and buried and on the third day rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Death is real. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But God isn't defeated by death. On Good Friday, sure, it looked like he had been as Jesus, God in the flesh, died naked on a Roman cross. But then came Easter Sunday and suddenly the tomb is empty and death has lost its sting. And it's all because God is in the resurrection business. He raised up Christ from the dead. And Paul says he's raised us up with him. The point is this. We don't make ourselves alive. It's a supernatural work of God. It's God who makes Christians, not us. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, writes this. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or make sleepy people, wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. Mark this well. Jesus didn't come to make good people slightly better. He came to make dead people alive. Though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, we have been made alive with Christ. And notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ. Past tense, raised us up. And seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Also past tense. If we are in Christ, we are already participants of his resurrection and heavenly reign here and now. And so to be a Christian is to be united with the living Christ. And baptism is the sign of this. It says that all that was true of him is true of us also. With him, we go into the water and we die to sin. With him, we rise to new life in relationship with God as we come out of the water. The fundamental mark of a Christian then is that they're made one with Christ so that what's true of him becomes true of us. But why would God make us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions? Why would Jesus die on a cross to bear the wrath of God that our sin so rightly deserves? Because of God's great love for us. Friends, do you know that? Do you know that God loves you? And not just a little bit either. He, he does this because of his great love for you. I know it sounds horribly twee, but it's true. God, God loves us as we are. He doesn't love what we do all the time, but he loves us. And let's be clear about this because lots of people get confused on this point. You can be angry with someone you love. As Michael Lloyd, the principal of my old theological college, Wycliffe Hall, writes, love in the presence of injustice takes the form of anger, in the same way that love in the presence of love takes the form of delight. At the cross, God speaks a clear, resounding no to the sin that's killing us, while at the same time speaking a loud, loving, gracious yes to us. God made us alive in Christ because of his great love for us, because he's for us. And because, to quote the prayer book once again, it's in his nature always to have mercy. And so the question then becomes, well, how does this union with Christ come about? 
And that takes us on to our third and final point. A Christian is someone saved by grace through faith. What moves us from spiritual deadness to new life in Christ? Answer, the grace of God. It is by grace you have been saved, Paul says, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. The great uh, American preacher of a couple of centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards, once said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. In other words, nothing we can do induces God to love us. It's not something we earn. We don't get stamps every time we go to church and after so many we put God in our debt and he has to save us. It doesn't work like that. What does Paul say? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is a gift, a gift freely given out of God's great love for us. We don't do good works and therefore are created in Christ Jesus. No, we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Good works are the overflow of salvation, not the cause of it. Now, if we're saved by grace, rather than by anything we do, then it means that one of the key marks of authentic Christianity has got to be gratitude. People who are alive in Christ know that without God, they're nothing. They know they were dead and now they're alive and the life with God that they have isn't down to them. We are saved by grace and that word grace means undeserved, unmerited kindness. But the means by which we take hold of God's grace to us is what? Faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Here's how John Piper explains it. And I think this is a really helpful illustration. So I hope it will help you as well. He says, allowing for imperfect analogies, every illustration, if you push it too far, will break down. He said, allowing for imperfect analogies, faith saves the way swallowing a, peel, a pill heals. But the pill not the swallowing, contains the disease-killing agent, the health-giving power. Christ rece faith receives Christ. Christ saves. In that sense, faith saves. What that means is that there's nothing meritorious about my faith. If I were to swallow an M&M, it wouldn't have the same effect as swallowing the pill because it's the medicine that does the healing work, not my swallowing. Swallowing is just what gets the medicine inside me. You're tracking. So what if I can't believe enough, someone might ask. Well, Sally Jones in her wonderful little book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, says this. Imagine you're on a hike up a big mountain and you lose your foothold. And just before you plunge over the precipice, you spot a branch. Do you need to believe that branch for it to save you? You don't worry about that. You just grab it. Faith is like grabbing onto that branch. We just reach out for God and he is the one who saves us. Our strong God is the one who rescues, not our strong faith. Do you see, the decisive thing isn't the quantity of our faith, but who our faith is in. In the Christian life, faith means trusting Jesus to be the remedy for all our ills. The one who not only takes away the guilt of our sin, but the one who enables us by his spirit to live the life of the kingdom and do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do.
done. Let's draw things together. An authentic Christian we've seen is someone first who has been brought from death to life, who's been made alive with Christ and who's been saved by grace through faith. They were unresponsive to God and now they are responsive to God. They used to follow the ways of this world, but now they do the good works God prepared in advance for them to do. They used to be disobedient to God's words, gratifying the cravings of their flesh, i.e. their their natural selves untouched by God's transforming grace. But now they walk in ever-increasing conformity conformity to God's word. Because Christians are saved by grace, they're full of thankfulness to God. Because they're saved by grace through faith, they're ever looking away to Jesus as their one and only hope in life and death. That's what it means to be a Christian. So church, are we alive in Christ? Is this true of us as a body? Does our worship together testify to the fact that we're a people constituted by the sheer grace of God? Is Jesus's way of life becoming our own way of life? Are we a community from whom good works flow in love and service to the world? And what about ourselves as individuals? Are we alive in Christ? Or are we still dead in our sins? Does our life exhibit the fruit of gratitude and good works which flow from putting our faith and our trust in Jesus? Can you sing these words of John Newton's incredible hymn from the heart? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Friends, that's the song of a Christian. Only a Christian can write that song and mean it. Only a Christian can believe that they were a wretch, lost and dead in their sin without Christ. Only a Christian can celebrate God's amazing grace that would find the lost, give sight to the blind and raise the dead to new life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, without you, we are dead. With you, there is life in all its fullness. Through our sin, we've cut ourselves off from you. You who are the the source of all life. We thank you so much that you died for our sins so that we might live with you to God. Give us faith to believe your love, humility to know our need of you, and joyful gratitude and response to your mercy towards us. Make us alive with you through your spirit so that your life might become our lifestyle now and always. Amen.